Good morning, everybody. It's a privilege to get a chance to introduce uh, Aaron, who will be communicating uh, the passage in Acts this morning. Um, this is her going to be her debut teaching time. <clears throat> I met Aaron as a freshman at ISU in uh, 2010, probably in the fall of 2010. It's been a while. She's been, it's been almost 13 years and um, probably about, maybe about a year ago, Erin um, communicated she would love to be a part of the teaching team. So for this past year, unbeknownst to you guys, we meet as a teaching team. We work through homiletics, which is the preparation, the study of preaching. She's been going through all of Acts and doing, preparing her own work, even through the, into the fall, last fall, going through all of the homiletics. And uh, we put a date on the calendar, which is today, and she's, gonna, she's worked on this passage here. Uh, in the book of Acts, and I'm just excited for uh, her to be able to communicate what God has put on her heart. She has an incredible story of God's grace in her life, and um, we are uh, just really pleased to, to have you. Thank you for all the work that you've put into this. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> all right, good morning. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, wonderful. I feel like Mike just walked me to my first day at kindergarten or something. <laughs> um, so like Mike said, I'm Erin. I've been involved with Cornerstone now for going on 13 years. I was a freshman back in 2010, um, back when they called me Little Erin McMusser, which is maybe a story for another time, but if you're interested, I can tell you about that later. Um, as many of you know, I'm mom to two little girls, Esther and Vera. Um, Esther is a little redhead that's always running around shouting, Mr. Mike. Um, so that's my daughter. I'm married to Chris, who's on staff with Cornerstone. And just this past Tuesday, we celebrated our eighth wedding anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and up until last year, I was also a middle school science teacher. Um, so this is my first time teaching to a group of non-middle schoolers. Um, I'm not going to do a science lesson, but I thought about it. It would have been really fun. Science is fun. Um, but I am excited to share how God has transformed me over the years and how and why I trust him to preserve me through to the end. And uh, this is some of what we're going to see today as we continue in Acts, as we see Paul sharing his testimony, and we also see him facing various hardships and trials. Uh, right now, one of the trials you may find yourself facing may be related to college in some way. Um, maybe it's choosing a major or just the academics in general, the workload, a certain class. Uh, it could be related to relationships, maybe lack of friendship or just not liking where you're at geographically. Amid the trials of college, I know it's kind of easy to forget like what the end goal is. Why am I here? Uh, so lucky for you, I'm here to remind you guys. Um, you're basically here to put something on your resume, right? There's a job out there that you want and you really can't get until you put on your resume, you know, bachelor's of science in education or marketing or nursing, whatever it may be. There's a certain job out there that you are desiring um, and there's other things you can put on your resume too, maybe like the GPA you've achieved or clubs you were involved in. 
And your resume says to those future employers, look what I've done. I'm reliable, I'm trustworthy, and you can count on me to continue to do great things. A resume is basically what gives you credibility. And have you ever thought about how that's kind of what the Bible is? These accounts we have of God's work, his promises fulfilled, all of his miracles, that's God's resume. And yet, how easy is it, is it for us to doubt what he's doing, what he's going to continue to do? For myself, I can often find myself like acting as if I'm God's manager. Like, hmm, not a really big fan of the results of that last project. I feel like God was kind of slacking on that. Uh, I'm going to circle back to that and see if we can do a better job next time around. How quickly I can forget to look back at the miraculous work God has already done in my life, especially my moments of doubt and fear. When my fears cloud out his testimony of transformation in my life, it also wavers my trust for him to preserve me in the future. But when I pause and I think about my past, there is a resume in my own life of God's work. I have a testimony of what he has already done. In this passage we're looking at today, we see Paul cling to the testimony of God's work in his life. It is this foundation that gives him the courage to stand facing his future. I want you to see this, and I'm going to keep coming back to this, because God has also given me a testimony. And because of that, I can trust him to preserve me to the end. Uh, so before we dive into the story of more hardships and trials, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Uh, dear Heavenly Father God, I pray that uh, as we sit here today, we can really be aware of your presence and how you are working in our lives and how you've worked in our lives in the past. God, would you help us engage with this scripture? May you see it in a new way if we are familiar with it. Help us see how you want it to, to apply to our own lives, God. Uh, yeah, I just pray for the hearts here that you could illuminate to them uh, the stories that you've given them, the testimony of your work that you've given them, uh, to give them faith walking into their future. I pray that you can just help me with my words this morning, God, that anything you want to stick can stick and anything else can just fall away. I lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. All right, so we're going to be looking at God's work of transformation and preservation. So we're going to pick up in Acts 21, verse 37, and we're jumping like right back into the action here where we left off with last week. Um, so it's kind of like basically an episode of every TV series out right now where like they leave you on a cliffhanger, you don't know what's going to happen, so you have to watch the next episode. Okay, so here we're in our next episode. When we left off, Paul had just returned to Jerusalem. He had gone to the temple, which got the whole city stirred up, right? And he was not met with hospitable people. Um, where we left off, he was being grabbed and beaten. They were going to most likely beat him to death until the tribune and soldiers stepped in to carry him out of the angry mob to the barracks. Uh, now, the barracks, I don't know, I'm not really familiar with what a barrack is like. It doesn't sound like a super comfortable, comfortable place to go. Um, but if it was between an angry mob and the barracks, for me, I would have chosen the barracks, probably. Um, but this is not Paul's response, so we're going to jump in and see how he responds. So we're picking up in Acts 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? 
Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. All right, so instead of being carried away from the angry mob, Paul asks to speak to them. Uh, of course, he does now have the protection of the tribune and the soldiers there. And basically, he's wanting to make a defense to these people who are confused and have misconceptions about what he's teaching. And I think he just really, really wants them to know the truth as well. So continuing in verse 40. And we, when he had been given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way... Uh, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. <clears throat> From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed through, toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. All right, so what we see here is Paul is jumping into his testimony, his conversion story, uh, and right now he's giving us a glimpse of what his life looked like before Jesus. He's like, guys, this is what my life was like before God interrupted my life. I know you might be confused because you used to know me um, in this different way. I used to be persecuting Christians, and now I'm one of them. But he's like, let me explain what happened. So then picking him in verse 6 as he continues with his story. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven shone, suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. <clears throat> and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointing you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned um, and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So a couple things to point out here as Paul shares his story. Uh, first of all, this is the second time in the book of Acts we are hearing Paul's conversion story, uh, but it won't be the last, so stay tuned for more. Uh, this is, however, the first time that we're hearing it through Paul's perspective. Paul finds himself between a rock and a hard place, right? The barracks and an angry mob. 
And his instinct is to jump into his story of transformation. Right? For me, I feel like my fight or flight might be kicking in. I would like, like get me out of here. Uh, but Paul is quick to want to share the truth. Right? He's like, listen, I was on this road, and suddenly there was this light. He's presented with the people who are confused, and seems like maybe there's some mob mentality going on, and at worst, some who want to see him dead. And he's jumping into his testimony. And Paul first um, shares about that light he encountered, which I think is a great opportunity for us to return to this whole idea of light, transformation, and action. I know for my own life, and often for the lives of others, I just kind of want to jump straight to transformation, right? Like, let's just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make some changes. But the physical light present in Paul's testimony is a great reminder that we need the power of Christ in our lives before transformation can occur, right? Not willpower or a 30-step plan or a self-help book. We need that light of Christ. In John 8, 12, Jesus tells us, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then throughout the book of Acts, like I mentioned, this, this story of Paul's conversion is repeated three times. So God really wants us to get something here. He really wants us to know Paul's testimony of transformation. In order for our lives to be transformed, they first need to be interrupted. Paul was doing things completely by himself, for himself, until the light of Christ stopped him in his tracks, right? And that's what he wants to share. He says, look, guys, listen, I was hunting down Christians until Jesus stopped and totally interrupted my life. He transformed me. And because of, because of that, it's not about me. It's about what Jesus is doing through me. Paul does not hesitate to give God glory for the transforming work done in his life. Because he has a testimony to share of God's work, he can trust God to preserve him to the end. In this, I find encouragement that the same God that transformed Paul is also transforming me. Uh, but first, I had to allow the light of Christ to interrupt my life as well. And I wasn't on a road to Damascus, but I was in my first couple of years of teaching. And not to like totally discourage you that are going into education, you might have heard this, but man, those first couple of years are hard, and it was really miserable for me in a lot of ways. Uh, it was the most difficult job I ever had to do. There were many things that made that job difficult, uh, but looking back now, I know the main thing that made that job difficult, uh, that first year of teaching, was that success in my job was where I was finding my whole identity. I was searching for my own glory in that job. I was always so nervous about whether or not like, those I was around thought I was a good teacher. Like every time I saw like a pair of teachers whispering in the hallway, which happens a lot, like I'd assume like they're talking about me and what a terrible teacher I am. Uh, whenever like my class would kind of like disrupt and like just not be listening, I'd like just like anxiously look at my classroom door like this is when my principal's probably gonna walk in and see this circus going on around me. I so badly wanted glory in what I was doing for someone to see a lesson that I put so much work and effort into and say like, wow, that Aaron girl really knows what she's doing. The summer after my second year of teaching, I was miserable. I wanted a way out of teaching that didn't affect my pride or my image. I wanted to be a part of a community of people my own age. I wanted a redeemed relationship with my dad. But God is more interested in changing our hearts than our circumstances. And God knew that despite my church attendance, 
the small groups I had been a part of and even led, the leadership trainings I had attended, and the new, survey, new student surveys I had had others fill out, I had not given my life over to him. I was much more focused on what I was doing than what God was doing in me. It's like I was in a small room and I knew like right outside the door was that light, but if I admitted now that I had never opened that door, was it too late? What would others think? But that summer, God interrupted my life. That summer, God used a teaching and a presentation of the gospel in a way I'd never heard it before to finally knock that door in. I admitted my need for him. I admitted my failure to open that door for so many years. I finally trusted God with the transformative work of my heart. And I know that may be a story of a young woman who's been in church her whole life, done all the right things, and finally admitting her need for something else. It may not appear as dramatic as a Saul to Paul conversion, but I fully believe it is. Anytime God can tear down the barriers that we've placed in front of our hearts to bring us to him, guys, that is a good work. He brought me from darkness to light. But you know what didn't change after that? My circumstances. After that, I was still teaching, still a part of the same community, still had a strenuous relationship with my dad. But what did change was that I wasn't facing that on my own anymore. It wasn't all up to Aaron. With the light of Christ in my life, I could see how these still hard and painful situations in my life, I could see them through a new lens, a way that God could be glorified in the midst of hardship. Teaching that fall felt different. Even when I did mess up, when a student might cuss me out, it happens with middle schoolers, um, or I didn't feel like I had it all together, it didn't feel like all was lost, it didn't feel like everything was falling apart. Because that's not where I found my purpose anymore, a search for glory. It's where I got to give God glory. Um, and last year was my last year teaching for the time being. Uh, I'm now staying home with my daughters. Um, and, <clears throat> sorry, I'm distracted by a noise back there. <laughs> um, and we were, it was a teacher institute day um, towards the end of the school year. So that like students aren't there, we're just there doing work as teachers. And I had a really good teacher friend of mine come into my room. He's a, just a colleague I really admire um, and kind of like my mentor to me. And everyone knew he was just really under a lot of stress. And he came into my room and sat down in this chair and like his shoulders were just slumped forward and he had tears in his eyes and he was just sharing with me like, I can't do this anymore. Like he was sharing, I just can't keep like trying to do these things. He was striving for perfection in his job, which he usually could achieve, but only to a point. And then once he could achieve it, what are you gonna do next, right? He could never level up to the next level of glory. And the weight of all that was catching up to him. And through tears, he asked me, how do you do it? How does it not all get to you? He came to me to talk to me, not because I was doing things perfectly, because, but because he sensed I had a hope. And in that moment, how was I going to answer? I had been in the same position as him just a handful of years prior. Because it's not about me, I told him. It's about God. And that I had the opportunity to tell him of the transformative work God had done in my heart. You see, the question I've become aware of through reading about Paul's account of God's work in his life, if we aren't paying attention to how God is transforming our lives, then how can we share that with others? How can we even trust him if we aren't aware of the testimony he's given us?
Because God has given me a testimony, I can trust him to preserve me to the end. What is the testimony God's given you? In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter instructs, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We can follow Peter's instruction in Paul's example. Even when being attacked by a mob that wanted to kill him, Paul doesn't try to defend himself with laws or want to go hide in the barracks or even insult those who are trying to hurt him. He jumps straight into the account of how God transformed his life. He rests in the good work God had already done. When my teacher friend asked me that day the reason I had hope, the only way I could answer was with the truth. I had to tell my story. God has transformed me, broken me to a place of humility where I could gently admit that it was all because of him and all for him. It reminds me of the lyrics to the song, I Love to Tell the Story. One of the first verses reads, I love to tell the story, more wonderful it seems, than all the golden fancies of all my golden dreams. I love to tell the story, it did so much for me, and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. If you feel discouraged by your story, or maybe even unsure if you've even placed your trust in Christ, remember, thankfully, yours is not the only story. Last week, we celebrated the story of our Savior, who gave up his life on the cross that we could have everlasting life. His resurrection is not just a historical event, but a story that has direct implications on our lives today. As the lyrics continue in that hymn, I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat, what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard, the message of salvation from God's own holy word. In John 3:16, it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the main story that matters. You can encounter the light of Christ, the same as Paul, the same as me. You can also have a story. You can say, guys, there was this light, and I let it interrupt my life. He can transform you too. He changes everything. I'm so grateful that the same God that transformed Paul is transforming me, and that he's given me a testimony. Because I have a testimony of what God has done in my life, I can trust him to preserve me to the end. And we saw Paul going back to God's work, relying on what God had done and sharing it with the people. And now we're going to see how he acts in such a way to show that he trusts God to care for and preserve his life. After being put in the barracks, the next day, uh, Paul is questioned in front of the council of both the Sadducees and Pharisees. And they were doing this because they wanted to uncover, like, what are you being accused of? So in verse 6 of chapter 23, the scripture reads, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. All right? So if you think things were like really stirred up in the temple the day before, things were like really going to get feisty now, um, because you see the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection the Sadducees do not, all right? So it's kind of like the sharks and the jets for my musical theater people, all right? So when he drops the word resurrection, right, they're like, 
which that's what you're going to do when you're going to fight in musical theater. But they really did fight. A dissension rose, it says in scripture, that became violent. And when the tribune was kind of aware that, okay, Paul might get hurt again, um, he got Paul out of there again and brought him back to the barracks. However, these couple of near-death experiences we read that Paul has gone through, these were things that he could perceive. He knew the angry mob wanted to kill him. He knew that dissension in the council between the Sadducees and Pharisees got violent. He could even possibly plan ahead for threats that may occur if he were going to go forward and testify. But what Paul couldn't see was how God was at work behind the scenes. So I'm going to pick up now in chapter 23, verse 12. So Paul has been returned to the barracks after that fight between the Sadducees and Pharisees. And we're going to continue with the story. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief of priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down, as though you are going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister, so Paul's got a nephew, he's Uncle Paul, um, he heard about this ambush that was being planned, so he went and entered the barracks, and he told his Uncle Paul. Uh, so Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So Paul is sending his nephew off to hopefully tell the tribune what happened. Here again, we have Paul facing a major trial. He's helpless in this situation. He's in the barracks. There's nothing he can do but send off his nephew and hope and pray that God would be at work to preserve him. Paul's nephew does go and tell the tribune about that oath and plot that those 40, over 40 people have taken to kill Paul. So we're going to pick up in verse 23 to see how the tribune responded. So it reads, Then he, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he, the tribune, also wrote a letter to go along with Paul to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. But when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against them. Not only did God provide Paul with his nephew to enlighten everyone of the, or the tribune of that plot against him, but it also seems God is really at work here to bring Paul safely out of the barracks. And he's not messing around because um, the tribune now is calling for 200 soldiers and 200 spearmen to protect Paul. He's sending him to the govern governor for further questioning. So he is nowhere close to free, but also it appears as God's working overtime to preserve him to bring his message further. God was preserving Paul because he was not done with his story. Paul was sitting in the barracks, helpless, 
and did not know that a small army was being prepared to bring him to safety. But God was making a way. What God illustrates so clearly through Paul is after his transformative work, we are a move to action. Again, this is not a self-willed action, but an urging from the Spirit, but it requires faith to follow. After Paul's powerful transformation and his immediate action to bring the gospel to nation after nation, Jews and Gentiles, he continued to move forward in his mission. I wonder how he felt now, sitting in the barracks after hearing that news from his nephew. Was he trusting God to preserve him? Was he looking back on how far God had brought him and faithfully believing he could continue to roam or doubting that God was at work? Was he feeling like this was the end? What do we do when we can't see God's preserving hand at work? I'm currently in a season where it is hard to see what God is doing and what he may be preserving me for. Uh, Going this past year from a teacher with a lot of credentials to a stay-at-home mom, just like trying to make it through each day, hour by hour, it's hard to see how God is at work sometimes. When Esther gets upset, throws a tantrum, how is God at work? What is he preserving me for? When I can't get Vera to nap, which is like every day, what is he doing behind the scenes? I quickly find myself not only doubting God's presence, but often forgetting to include him in the picture completely. Once again, instead of looking at what God has already accomplished, his resume, I again look to my own, and this has two effects. The first effect is all I see is my weakness, not how God can work in spite of it. I only see the empty spaces and flaws on my motherhood resume. I'm angry, I'm very easily overstimulated, not put together. When I only look to my resume, I believe I'm not cut out for motherhood. I'm already defeated. The second effect is the opposite. I only see my strength. I trust myself too much. This results in fear and anxiety because it's all up to me. A Bible teacher I really like named Jackie Hill Perry, she put it this way. Some of us are so fearful because we're also arrogant, supposing we are all the help we need to win every battle. So either way you slice it, if I look to my own resume, all it brings me is defeat and anxiety. When I was recently trying to decide whether or not to go back to teaching next year, I was deep in feeling like a failure as a mother, feeling both defeated and anxious. In many ways, I felt like going back to work would be what was best for my kids because at least if I was at work, they wouldn't need to deal with my poor mothering as many hours of the week. I share this with a friend who then wisely asked me, is your kids never seeing you upset or going through hardship really what's best for them? Right? What does true success look like for my kids? And as much as I'd like to protect my kids from any hardship or pain or suffering, especially that I might cause, because of the transforming work God has done in my heart and because of his testimony of goodness to me, I know eliminating hardship is not what's best for them. What is best for my kids is them being transformed as well. In Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, the scripture reads, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has 
given to us. My testimony of God's work in my past has given me reason to rejoice in my sufferings because I know that this faith doesn't change my circumstances but helps me suffer well, knowing that by enduring, my character will become more like Christ, relying on God in all things. So instead of wanting to run from situations where I can't see God at work, I can have faith to endure. And I should not want to hide this transformative work from my kids, even in the middle messy of it, because that is truly what it means to live out the gospel. I got to witness a direct example of this recently after enduring through a season of a lot of sickness with my family. Uh, Both of my kids were repeatedly sick all winter, and there was nothing I could do to escape it. Uh, It all started in October. They both got RSV, which is a really bad respiratory virus, especially for babies. And since Vera was only a few months old at the time, I was really quick to worry. But with RSV, there's no medicine to describe, to prescribe. Uh, You just kind of have to wait it out. Like even after taking her to the ER, because her chest was caving in as she was breathing. They're like, yep, she's having trouble breathing, but you just got to keep an eye on her for the next, you know, couple weeks and make sure she keeps breathing. It was so hard to watch her with this heavy breathing and seeing her having trouble breathe through her nose and sleep at night. There was little I could do besides pray. So that's what I did a lot, uh, oftentimes out loud and many times through tears in the presence of both my kids. I pray, God, please take care of Vera. Please help me to trust that you can take better care of her than I can. Lord, help give me peace and help heal her quickly. After about a month and a half, a couple months, Vera finally fully recovered from RSV. Um, But just a week or so ago, I was preparing lunch for both my girls. Uh, Vera was in her high chair, and Esther was sitting next to her at the table. And they're somehow, like, carrying on a whole conversation between the two of them, even though they're three years old and nine months. And I was just trying to get lunch together, and I heard Vera sneeze a couple of times. And then I heard Esther praying, Dear God, Vera is sick. Please help her feel all better soon. In Jesus' name, amen. In this moment, God illuminated something in my heart that I've known in my head for a while. I'm the one that models for my kids how to trust in God when we don't see what he's doing. I don't do this by eliminating any chance of suffering or trials from their lives, but by bringing my burdens to God in the midst of those sufferings. Because God is not preserving me for my own comfort or status or glory. God is not preserving me for Rome. He is not preserving me for some epic missionary journey. God is preserving me for the sake of my kids. He is preserving me for the sake of them seeing a life lived out for the gospel. And that's really good. And I don't know how long that will be for. But I want to trust that he knows what he's doing behind the scenes. Because God has given me a testimony, I can trust him to preserve me to the end. The same God that preserved Paul is preserving me. So what causes you pause in trusting God's preserving hand? Where else do you tend to put your trust? In yourself? Your resume? How ultimately does that work out for us? We can trust that God will preserve us to the end because of what he's already done. So look back on your own story. In what ways has God already already preserved you. Could you list those out? Can you take time to rest in God's completed work on the cross? 
the battles he's already taken you through. Despite the hardship I've been through in life, when I look back on what God has done, I can say that he's been gracious to me. I want you all to be able to say that too. Take time to recognize what he has carried you through to give you hope for the future and hope in the midst of suffering. And then recognize this week when you're depending on yourself alone, looking to your own resume, pray for the work God is doing that you can't see behind the scenes. Because maybe you can't see it, but he may be preparing a small army to carry you to safety as well. When Paul was under question between a rock and a hard place and desperately wanting others to know the truth, he went back to the resume of God's work in his life. He was quick to fall back on and trust what God had already done. What is the story God's given you to fall back on? When Paul is sitting in the barracks, again helpless in a deadly situation, we see that God is at work behind the scenes to preserve him. Even when we can't see it, God is at work to preserve you for his glory. Even in the midst of suffering, I'd argue even more in the midst of suffering, God is calling us to hope in his story. The hymn I read earlier is written by a woman named Catherine Hankey. Catherine was born in 1834 and organized and taught Sunday schools in London. She also did missionary work as a nurse in South Africa. And when Catherine was the same age I am now, 31, she became sick with a serious illness that left her in recovery for a long time. During this time of illness is when she wrote the poem that became the song, I Love to Tell the Story. So don't miss that. In the midst of her suffering, she wrote a poem of the good work God had already done. The last verse of the poem reads, I love to tell the story, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. We may know like the back of our hand what God has already done. But are we hungry and thirsty to, to be reminded of it? In our moments of fear and doubt, when we can't see God working, God has been gracious to give us a testimony. He has given us the story of his Savior. In this truth, we can find courage and trust that God will preserve us for the sake of this story, to live out the gospel and to tell a story of what he has done in our lives. The same God that transformed Paul is transforming me. The same God that transformed me is transforming you. The same God that preserved Paul is preserving me. The same God that preserved me is preserving you. Because God has given me a testimony, I can trust him to preserve me to the end. I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for meeting us in our stories and for giving us a testimony of what you have done. God, I pray as we move forward today, uh, we can just reflect and rest and feel encouraged by the good work you've already accomplished. God, that when we find ourselves looking to our own resumes and either trusting in our own resumes too much or uh, just feeling like you can't work in spite of our weakness, God. Lord, I just pray that we can remember of what you've already done and know that we can fall back on that. Lord, I just pray that you can meet us all where we're at this morning and help us engage with you. If we haven't, God, I pray that you could let your light interrupt our lives and stop us in our tracks, God, that you can change our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.